Welcome to the Lalo Degash podcast. I'm Lalo Degash, and I'm here with uh, today's co-host is Jennifer Sutton. Hello. And today I'm going to be speaking with a friend of mine who I met online, who's a very interesting person. He is president and founder of America's first secular humanist prison outreach organization called Save by Reason. And Josh is a reformed fundamentalist Christian neo-Nazi skinhead, and white supremacist. He now identifies as a classical liberal and a staunch free-thinking activist, and is currently you're working on your bachelor's degree in uh, social and behavioral sciences, and you're also writing a book on your experiences. Is that all correct, John? Yeah, that's correct. All right. Um, well, that's a, that's a hell of a, <laughs> of a resume. That is so cool. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been, uh, talking with, uh, Joshua for, for a while now, uh, Joshua Turner, it, you've also worked, uh, in your outreach program along Peter Bogosian. Yeah, actually Peter's a part of my, um, board. He's part of my board of advisors. He's the senior advisor. And, um, I actually got this idea for, for say by reason from him because he wrote his college dissertation on um, on his experiences and in, in going into jails and prisons and uh, teaching the Socratic method to inmates and um, you know watching their critical thinking and their moral reasoning skills get go uh, better get better and so I was like wow I want to do this you know I, I was in jail and prison and and this kind of thinking helped me and I know it can help other people so well I mean there's there's so much to go over but I really think right. that um for my podcast right now, it, like you're one of the best people to talk to, considering the atmosphere mm -hmm. in the United States right now with Black Lives Matter, the racial tensions, Trump, everything else. Um, racism has exploded into a much bigger deal in the last decade. Um, so for your story, we really have to start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us like just your, about your upbringing and where you're from? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I was born in Los Angeles, um, raised by my mom and my stepfather. And my mom had a really tough upbringing. Um, so when she was she turned seventeen years old, she met some Christians, and at the time, uh, the church Calvary Chapel, which is like a Pentecostal light church, uh, they were doing this Jesus freak movement and they had a guy named Chuck Smith who would hit the beach in his flip flops and he was like a cool surfer with long hair. And uh, it was just like late 70s, early 80s. And, um, you know, this was the beginning of what they called the Jesus Freak movement. And uh, he was like the first cool, like hippie Christian, you know. And uh, so my mom got, she met some guys that were in this movement. She lived close by Chuck Smith's church. So uh, she really got swept up into this movement. And um, I, I really think it's because of the, her upbringing. You know, she grew up in uh, really poor neighborhoods and was just exposed to a lot of things she shouldn't have been exposed to. I don't want to go into too much detail. But, um, yeah, so she just went full bore into Christianity. And um, so I was raised in a very strict Christian atmosphere. Um, my mom, I mean, I was told everything from that there was demons in my room when I was like five years old. Uh, demons in my room and angels, you know, fighting over my spirit in my room. So Is this know, what course, she would tell you? 
yeah, she would she would tell me this, you know, she'd tell me that's why I needed to pray every night, you know, that God would uh, protect me and send extra angels, basically, to fight the demons that were trying to come after me. So, I, of course, I grew up having nightmares all the time that there was demons in my room and, and stuff like that. Did you believe like this but, yourself when she, when, at, at the time? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, obviously now, now reflecting, I know that they were dreams, but I mean, I could have swore that I had some real experiences with demons in my, being in my bedroom. Um, what do they call that when, when you have that, those, um, they're not night terrors, but when you actually have those hallucinations where you actually see, I know there's a name for it where you're, um, I'm not sure, but I, I, I suffer from PTSD now and I'm, and it's not just from that. I mean, I've, I've had a lot more experiences that we'll, I'll talk about later mm -hmm. that, uh, impacted that. But I mean, that, uh, that is obviously probably what started, you know, my, my PTSD issues. I'm kind of curious when, when you believe in that, those kind of things, and you're told that by your parents at that age, does it manifest into actual like memories in your head of that actually happening? That's what I mean. Like I, I've, I have a couple of memories of, I have one specific memory of me getting up to go to the restroom. And when I came back in the room, when I opened the door, there was a demon walking like pacing in my room and he was like looking at my brother who lived who slept on the bottom bunk and I slept on the top and he was just like looking at my brother and pacing back and forth so now I mean I, I know it was a dream but back when I was you know five years old I was convinced for years that it really had happened do you think it was a dream or do you think it was like a waking hallucination because I have the same kind of memories or something like I, I have a distinct memory of a demon looking at me through a glass window of, of our um, addition in the back of the house and I and I didn't dream it but it was like a waking I don't know and maybe it was definitely because of the religious upbringing but do you think it was a dream or do you think it was like a waking a wake hallucination it, do you it know? probably yeah I don't I don't honestly don't really know I mean it was so long ago now but it, it could have very well been a waking hallucination it probably was what it was because even now I remember it just felt so real what I find interesting is like in retrospect, even in my childhood, I remember, you know, when you're very little and you're kind of afraid of the dark and you see, you know, the shapes in the dark or you, you feel like you're seeing something in, in a window or something's under your bed. But I guess because of my background that I was never brought up with any kind of religiosity and, oh, you know, right. I, I, like I would see those kind of things. But in immediately after a second later i'd be like okay but those things don't exist right and and i can rationalize out of it because of right of, of because how i was brought up but i guess it's when you're brought up in a different way that that same fear that a child has of the dark and those images you see you don't have that kind of immediate after rational thought right you're actually told right. like no 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 those are really there so i guess the the memory that retains after that is very different so you've exactly. never thrown up for being so terrified of like Satan? No, what me? No, or or Joshua? You've really missed out on that experience, Lalo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. If, you, if you really wanted to, you can just take acid or something, <laughs> and you, just get a, you can experience all that shit I experienced when I was a kid. <laughs> I may I'll, may I'll do a trip to Peru and do ayahuasca or something. But uh... yeah, it was a, a badass trip. But but no, seriously. I mean, you you had logic to prevent you from going down all types of rabbit holes that yeah. I went down because I didn't. I wasn't taught logic, you know. So so what, and what that's can why you, uh, 
I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I was just gonna say that's why I think I was so susceptible to becoming uh, influenced to become a skinhead later on in my life and, and all these other things I got into was because I wasn't taught as a kid um, how to think logically, you know. What else, I mean, what other things that happened while you were growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in this really strict atmosphere. I was told crazy things uh, from the demons all the way to, uh, you know, being told that the government was going to be kicking down our door anytime soon and making us take a mark so that we uh, could per basically buy, sell, or trade things. You know, it was going to be the new credit card. Um, because in Revelations it talks about you know the mark of the beast and nobody can buy or sell or trade anything unless they have this mark. Well, my parents um, were being told by this the pastors that you know there's going to be this microchip coming out in the future that is going to replace um, credit cards and it's basically going to be a way to scan um, and keep track of all your bank account information, all your money by just scanning this card under your skin or your forehead. I have evangelical cousins who still talk about that. Yeah, in relation to like the, you know, the the end of days and the Antichrist coming and they said there's certain signs and one of them is that microchip thing. Yeah, they've told yeah. me that, yeah. Well, imagine telling an eight-year-old kid that the government, that this is going to be happening like tomorrow or, you know, here within the next year and and that the government would kick down your doors and break, it would hold my, my little brother and I down and bust our fingers, uh, uh, bust our fingers off and our toes off torturing us in front of my parents to try to get them to take the mark and then eventually they'd behead us um if we didn't take it and my parents Whoa. said we couldn't my parents said we could not absolutely if you know, no matter what no matter how much torture we couldn't take it because if we had the mark that means you were forever damned to hell and you could never go to heaven you're eight years old when this is happening i'm eight my little brother's six and he's hearing this as well yeah and we're both crying i remember crying and staying up very late that night praying and all of us were crying and like I mean it was serious and it was scary and I mean I felt like I was living in Nazi Germany or something you know it was just insane um so uh, how, until what age did did this continue well this 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 continued uh, I remember the year when the year 2000 came the whole Y2K thing my dad I remember my dad sitting me down uh probably December of 99 sitting me and my brother down individually and just having this really serious talk about how um, you know he had heard the pastor Chuck Smith talking about there was a prophecy in the Bible saying that you know it, it, that's there's some code in the Bible saying that when the year 2000 hits Christians aren't going to be here the rapture was going to happen and he was explaining the rapture to my brother and I and I just remember when the year 2000 did come along I just remember that being like the the really the first time I I was starting to doubt my parents' faith because we didn't get raptured. There was nothing happened. You did know, you really genuinely believe in the rapture? Uh, oh yeah, I I even did after that. I thought okay, well maybe they were wrong, you know. And my dad said no, it actually means two thousand two. They were made a mistake, and so I remember you know thinking for another two years it was going to happen. And and my dad and my mom, or my stepdad, excuse me, and my mom are still in that frame of mind, you know, even wow. after. After even after it passing so many times, and and they're still waiting for it. But yeah, so I was uh, told all this stuff, and my at the same time, my my stepdad was uh, extremely right wing. He listened to Rush Limbaugh, um, so I was all, and he listened to it in the radio all the time. Whenever we get in the car to go to school or something, he'd be listening to Rush or or uh, what's that other guy, Savage Nation. So I was always hearing about how the immigrants were destroying the country, you know, and and liberal intellectual thinking is a bad thing, you know, and it's destroying 
um, basically the Protestant, you know, frame of mind, the, Pro the great Protestant way of life that, that brought us America and American values. Did this also go along with a lot of like racial ideas? I can't really say that, you know, there was that many racial ideas. My stepdad was half Mexican. But oddly enough, oddly enough, his dad, who married the Mex the full-blooded Mexican grand my full-blooded Mexican grandmother, he's Irish and he he was very racist. He would say that. I'd hear the N word all the time from him. Um, you know, he would talk about the Jews. You know, running the media and everything. So I did hear a lot of that racist, uh, a lot of racist tones and all that kind of stuff from from him. But my, you know, my, as far as my parents were concerned, we were all one per people at one time until the Tower of Babel happened, then God separated everybody by language and race. Um, but ultimately, you know, they, they believe we were all God's children, and I, there was not very much racial talk at home. Did, and were, were you, like, also, like, a firm-believing Christian, like, even oh, in yeah. your teenage years? Yeah, I was. Um, my grandfather was actually an atheist. He he wasn't the kind of atheist that, that got there by logic. He got there because he really um, despised religion, particularly Christianity, possibly because of his own personal experiences. I, I don't know, and I never asked him, but um, he was a really angry atheist, didn't like religion, but he, he uh, would always show me documentaries about, um, you know, how we came from apes, and, you know, he would, so I would learn about evolution at an, at an early age, but my parents told me that that was wrong, and that was evil, so I, I kind of struggled with that, and I was actually, um, I mean, there was, most for the most part, I was Christian and I believed it. But there was times when I would ask questions in Sunday school that got me in trouble because I just kept pestering the teacher, you know, because I did have questions and I did have doubts. And um, I'd have to say because my, probably my grandpa pe planted those seeds. So w at what point did you fall into uh, Nazism? Uh, well, that didn't really come till prison. But I live. I grew up after uh, I was born in L.A. I lived there for about seven or eight years and then the the riots were happening so we moved up here to paradise where I live now and it's a town it's 91 percent white and the culture here is it just I mean not everyone is racist but it, it, there's just a really racist culture here there's a lot of bikers um, you know just people are really right-wing here it, the, the the county is a red county so um, there's just a lot of racism here. I remember seeing swastikas drawn on my desks, my friends' desks, like, you know, there's swastikas and stuff. And I remember, like, the coolest guy in my school that all the girls liked and, you know, all the guys wanted to be like, he was uh, a skinhead. Um, so, really? Wow. Yeah, he was, yeah, he had, a, he got a tattoo when he was 16 of a swastika. So, I mean. What, what year is this that, uh, that you're in high school? This is, like, 98. This is the late 90s. This is when, like, the Amer movie American History X came out. Right. How old are you now? I'm like 16. Oh, how now I'm 32. Yeah. Now you're 32. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you're talking to a kid. <laughs> no, so at that time you're like 16, but now you're 32. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm 32. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so it was like just ingrained in the culture where I grew up. Um, but there wasn't there wasn't like active real political skinheads. There wasn't like a, a organization like Hammerskins or anything like that where I lived. It was just like you know redneck hillbilly type you know, racism. Uh, but, you know, the guy that was a skinhead was just like a self-proclaimed skinhead, I think because the American History X had come out at that time. So he was just trying to be something that he thought he was, but he wasn't really a part of, you know, some organization or anything. You know what I mean? I've heard you talk about American History X before. As, yeah. And I was, kind of, I was surprised that you mention it 
during those days as something that people were trying to copy because it kind of uh, gave enthusiasm to be a skinhead, which I thought was interesting because it's an anti-skinhead movie. Right. But they don't make very much. They don't make skinhead movies. Uh, I mean, there's another movie called Romper Stomper that is actually um, Russell Crowe's like first movie. It's an Australian movie, and it's about skinheads. He plays a skinhead. Um, but I mean, other than those two movies, I don't think there's very many movies about skinheads. So um, I guess that that was just my first exposure to what skinheads were, and the way that Edward Norton played that role. You know, I just thought he was such a badass, and I just kind of disregarded the ending. You know. That's that interesting <laughs> that, it, that it can you can like take half the movie mm-hmm. and make it into kind of a like a glorification pro Nazi skinhead movie. Yeah, well, when I got to prison, the skinheads that were there they didn't like that movie. You know, they, they right, said that right. movie was a you know a Zog movie or whatever. But so anyway, so growing up in this in this strict Christian home, um, you know, not every teenager or young child lashes out in rebellion like I did, but. Um, I did. I, I rebelled big time. Um, and I hung out with kids that I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with that, um, you know, were doing drugs and stuff. So I got into drugs at a very young age. I was smoking pot when I was like 12. Um, started doing the harder stuff like crank and, and Oxycontins and stuff when I was like 15, 16. So are you saying that pot is a gateway drug? No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, it's just the first thing I was exposed to, <laughs> I guess. But no, I'm not saying that at all. This is a partnership for a drug-free America. <laughs> no, hell no. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, I got exposed to the harder stuff at like 15, 16. So I, I developed a drug habit at a young age. And um, I don't even know why I brought up the drugs. I lost my frame did, of thought. Did it, no, I mean, thanks. did it influence at all, in, do you think, in, in that? Or, or does it, it, do you think that it's all, at all related? Um, not really. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I, I want to say not really because skinheads are not supposed to be using in their precepts. They have skinheads with have what's called the 88 precepts. And they're like, the, it's like their Bible, you know, they're the rules that skinheads have to follow. And one of them is it talks about keeping your blood pure of toxins and stuff. So uh, basically, the skinheads translate that to don't do drugs. And some of them even take it as far as don't drink. But it's ironic because most of the skinheads that I've met in prison are there because they have drug problems or, or drinking issues. So, um, I, I, but I can't really say that the two correlate. Um, I, I would say that I got into drugs because I, I was rebelling. Um, and I just. Yeah, but would you say initially that it, it led you to meeting people that, that, oh, were yeah, like absolutely. That? Yeah. Abs- yeah, I guess, I guess in that way it did because everybody that, that I was using with not ev- everyone because there were the hippie type people that weren't racist, but a, a lot of them were, you know, your racist type guys and, and girls. So, yeah, that, yeah, I mean, in that way, it probably was. But uh, so so I oh, that's why I brought up the drugs, because I, I started getting in trouble a lot because of drugs. I went to juvenile hall and that's where I started to be getting exposed to skinheads, like real skinheads that were a part of um, organizations. And when I was 18. Ooh. Oh, That's go ahead. That's a question. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, step, do you think that that putting kids in juvenile hall does more harm than good? I I personally do, and it just depends on the juvenile hall. My exper- the juvenile hall that I went to was not a good one. Um, it was run basically like a prison. The guards would yell at you. I've been tackled by a guard. 
because I spilled my milk and I stood up real quick because I didn't want the milk to get on me and I guess he must have thought I was going to fight somebody so he just totally he speared me so hard it knocked my wind out of me didn't break any bones or nothing but I mean they just they mm -hmm. treat you like an inmate they treat you like you're lesser than human um, so, and that's my experience so I don't know if other juvenile halls are better about it or not but um, so say, I personally so say, believe sorry <laughs> oh I was just going to say I personally believe in rehabilitation not you know Right. That's what I was going to ask. Like, so you have a child that's done something wrong, say gotten involved with drugs or something, um, mm -hmm. and you put them in juvenile hall. So you, you put that group of kids together that all have come from, a, you know, some sort of background that's less than healthy. Right. And so mm -hmm. you say you got introduced to um, uh, unsavory other kids, you know, with an unsavory background. So I'm, I, I don't know that it would do any good. I, it, that's why I'm asking if, if you thought that it was um, harmful because it, you just get, it, you know, introduced to kids. I just think it's, it's, it would be more harmful. I mean, you have the experience also of juvenile hall and prison. Would you say in, in, in general incarceration can be negative in the sense that it just, you get inculcated and surrounded by people who might influence you in the wrong, like to be even worse than when you came in. Absolutely, and that's and especially in California because I know here in California, I don't, I don't know how other states' prisons are, but in California, it's run by the inmates, and the inmates separate everything by race, and it, that's even in the juvenile halls. The kids separate everything by race. It's white boys hang out with the white boys, you know, the blacks hang out with the blacks, and so when you do that, you start to have a gangs. Or, um, you know, you start to have cliques that are racist. And that's what I was exposed to when I went to juvenile hall. I had to hang out with the white boys. And it was wrong for me to let a black guy reach into my cookie bag and get a cookie out because he was black. So I was, yeah, definitely started getting exposed, even though I was exposed to the swastika and, and, and the N-word at home and at school. I was starting to become more exposed to more deeper uh, ideologies that were more racist and, you know. More neo-Nazi. Do, do you think you would have become as extreme as you were without your experience at Juvenile Hall, or you think with prison it would have done it for you? No, I don't think so. Um, oh, with oh, without prison, if I with if the, I didn't go to with, Juvie but then went to prison, yeah, probably not. I think I think Juvie really set me up for the course I took in prison because there I, it kind of tr put the training wheels on for me. You know, it's okay. This is how it goes. You hang out with the white boys. Whereas if I went into prison you know, blind without any experience at all, I wouldn't know how things went really. And I probably, maybe I wouldn't have went towards the skinheads right away. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but I know that one, one thing that really did make the skinheads attractive was for one, they, most of them were, believe it or not, Christians, but they were part of a, a branch or a denomination of Christian, Christianity called Christian identity. And another thing was that they were all right, right wing, and so they were talking about the same things that I heard at home. You know that immigrants, immigrants were ruining the country, and and all this other stuff. So I think that was ultimately um, what what led me to to go down that path. That and not being taught to you know use logic. So you you're saying there's like a relation there between like the social conservatism of Christianity, and and that kind of a race based uh, skinhead philosophy. Yes, at least at least the, Christ, the fundamentalist Christianity that I was uh, exposed to as a kid. You know, I know that there's, you know, liberal Christianity like Episcopalians, and there's other denominations that are far more liberal. And I don't want to, you know, lump them in with these 
uh, other right wing categories of, of Christian denominations that I'm talking about. But yeah, that definitely, there's a lot of sects in in America, especially that are just really far right, and they have a lot a lot of um, intersecting ideologies with uh, neo Nazis. So, so how, when did uh, you go from juvenile hall? After it was this after high school, or were you still in high school when you get arrested and, and go to prison? I just graduated high school, but I was still on juvenile probation for a burglar for a burglary, and uh, I had just turned eighteen, and I was on crank, and I was spun out of my mind, and I jacked a car. I used a BB gun that looked like a real forty-five, and uh, somebody had pissed me off, and I was trying to find him, and I was walking around all over town. And I was tired of walking all over town, and I was, you know, spun out of my mind. So I just uh, stole a little BB gun from Kmart, went out in the back of Kmart into the parking lot, and it's just broad daylight, and pointed it in some woman's face and stole her car um, by force. And so I, I got five years for it, and that's when I went to prison. They dropped my juvenile charges, and I was an 18-year-old kid finding myself facing five years in prison. So... Um, I had to make a choice pretty early. I had to either run with the woods or the skinheads. Being a white guy, you have those two choices. What are the woods? The woods are they, they're a, a big range of white uh, guys or girls categorized woods um, or make up woods. And, and that can be anywhere from non-affiliated gang members. So just, you know, a regular white guy who's never been in, involved in any gangs or any racist, you know, ideology or anything like that. To um, to your white supremacist or biker gangs, you know. So you got like the Nazi lowriders or the Aryan nations or um, you know uh, who's the those famous uh, bikers. I can't even think of the name right now. Hell's uh, Angels. Hell's Angels. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. And Mongols and all those guys. So those are those are all woods. Just anybody, basically any white guy that's not a skinhead is a wood. And then there's the skinheads and. If I ran with the woods, I'm from Butte County, so that would be my what they call a car. So I, that would be my car that I run with. Those are the guys that take care of me. Whoever's the, the older guy from Butte County, uh, he's the one that is in charge of Butte County, the Butte County guys, all the guys younger than him. He takes those are, you know, he's in charge of them. And uh, so I would have to answer to this Butte County car. And a lot of the times the guy running the car is a Butte County gangster. And these guys are lo- just local, like crank crank dealers that are involved in dealing drugs. So I know, okay, if I run with these guys, I'm going to end up having to deal drugs for them or hold drugs for them or something like that. And then there's the skinheads. And then I see them doing Bible study and I see them reading books, reading philosophy. They love Nietzsche for some reason. Um, so, and then they're talking about, you know, the same things that I heard at home. So, and they're working out and they're in good physical shape and stuff too. So that's who I went with. I was like, that's who I'm going to run with. I'm going to run with those guys. Did you, uh, that time, did you consider yourself when you went into prison a full-fledged skinhead, or were you not yet? Um, I said I told them that I was, but I knew that I wasn't because I start. I, I was watching them and I saw how, and I and when I was in county jail and in juvenile hall, I, I kind of uh, been told by guys that knew that had either older brothers or that had been to prison um, that knew how the whole skinhead thing worked. So I knew that they had real organizations like Hammer Skins. And, and I knew that they didn't like that. You couldn't just go to prison and say you were a skinhead, that you had to be one on the street, you know. So um, I just said, uh, you know, I'm a skinhead. And I knew I think I thought I, at that time I knew enough about it to to get by. You know, if they want to quiz me or something, I could get by on it. But I was never really um, 
you know, jumped in or I was never really part of any or skinhead organization on the street. So um, when I just decided to run with the skinheads, it was just kind of like a thing I decided to do on my own. And, um, you know, I kind of just had to bullshit my way through it when, when they asked me, you know, where I was from and stuff. I actually just told them I was an independent skinhead, which is an independent skinhead is just a skinhead that doesn't belong to a particular organization. Did you at that time fully believe it? Like, did you want to be a skinhead? Oh, yeah. Like, were you like, this is, this is awesome. I like, I want to be part of this group or is it, was it more like a necessity kind of thing? At that time it was more of a necessity, but the more I was exposed to it, like the more that I learned about the Zionist conspiracy and all this, I really believe that I was unraveling this, this reality that uh, had eluded me and my family, you know, for, for as long as I was alive. And, and so, yeah, I really believed it and I was all about it. And, uh, I, I read Mein Kampf, I read every you know, piece of literature I can get my hands on. And, and before I knew it, I found myself leading the, we, we called it church when we met every Monday. It wasn't real church. I mean, even though we'd, we'd sometimes do Christian identity stuff, but it was mostly just talking about, we'd, you know, write poems about, you know, Nazi ideology or whatever, and we'd just share it. And uh, I'd be teaching church and, and, you know, telling the guys what the swastika meant and you know, stuff like that because I was just getting I was getting so into it and at that time I was really in, intellectually curious so um, unfortunately I was reading all the wrong stuff but um, yeah I was just I really wanted to learn and I thought I was I thought I was really on to something real so what is the mentality that you were in at, at that time like what did you think about like Jews or blacks or other races um, I thought that most your your typical Jew or black or you know Hispanic person was oblivious and just a pawn in this highly articulated, um, you know, conspiracy by just a few of uh, the top Zionist um, leaders that were manipulating our media and our banks, and that they were using, um, and they were using non-white culture and non-white races, people, individuals to infiltrate America and white the white life and destroy it. Because um, basically whites are set up, supposedly, you know, I believed at this time that whites were set apart from the other races um, and basically on a pedestal. We were, we were the shepherds to the sheep and um, we were supposed to be their leaders and uh, we were somehow just born with better genes and um, the Jews knew this and with their cunning and with their, you know, with their manipulative ways they were going to destroy us by weakening our blood because that's where our strength came from. You so know what that sounds gonna... like? <laughs> ISIS? <Sorry. laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, it's, I, I mean, I, I'm an ex-Muslim. Oh. It sounds like Islam. It sounds like you just change right. white for, for Muslim, and it's the exact same story. I, I uh, Exposure is a big thing. The more I was exposed to anti-Jewish sentiment, the more I became anti-Jew. Mm. So you surround yourself with, um, it's a group think. It's yeah. dangerous. It's very dangerous. <laughs> it's amazing how like these groups are. It all concentrates around like the evil Jew. <laughs> it's a Zionist <laughs> conspiracy in every group for some reason. Um, right. Who said it's a conspiracy? Ooh. Ooh dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I can see. I'm reading the Intercept right now. They're they're writing about you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld is one of the ones who runs in that top Zionist conspiracy thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you how do you feel about 
in retrospect, looking at your mentality at that time right now? Um, I, I it was just a young. I, see, I didn't have a father at the. I mean, I, I had my I had my stepdad, but he was really abusive, um, and I didn't I didn't really have a good father figure. So I was just young and full of testosterone and looking for you know some a, a dad or just a, something to somebody to look up to um and something to believe in you know um I, I don't know if you had a chance to read uh Sam Harris's book that he wrote uh what's the the letter last book? to a christian nation no no oh. the le- the last one that he just it, wrote islam I'm, and the yeah, future of tolerance islam and, and the future of tolerance yes um who's who's the guy that he wrote it with majid nawaz yeah majid uh, Majid met, mentions that you know when he was you know eighteen, um, he basically had the same emotions, you know, that this testosterone and just this feeling that you you need to belong to something. You know, as a male, uh, you you got to find an ideology to follow and to teach your family, you know, and and to lead your family uh, with this ideology. So yeah, that's I guess that's what I was feeling at the time. I was becoming a man, and I was looking for meaning and this was my meaning now but how do i feel about it now Mm -hmm. well obviously i think it's ridiculous (laughs) um i think that what i mean what how do i feel about what the neo-nazism i mean do you feel like sad or angry at yourself in retrospect or you just feel like kind of like how could i have fallen into that like how do you how do you how do you look back on that old self of yours um i'm embarrassed honestly I'm embarrassed to say that was me. I mean, right, the last year or two is really the first time in my life that I've talked about um, my past and and being even being a neo-Nazi. It's not something I like to admit because I'm so ashamed of it. Um, just to to look back and I think that that I could have believed those things and and uh, I, I mean I've even done things for the skinheads. I've I've hurt people that uh, I didn't want to hurt because you know I had to put in work because I was the youngster. So. I'm ashamed of that, you know. I, I, I'm not ashamed. I, I'm not proud of the person that I was. So, w- w- until what point did you were you uh, a skinhead all throughout prison until you left? Yeah, and when I got out on the street, I was I was still a skinhead for another two or three years. Um, did you run with with a group outside of prison? No, I tr- I wanted to like you know get find some youngsters and kind of start my own little group, but I I was just so in. I, my drug problem was bad, and that became more of a priority. So um, the guys that I was running with uh, were just drug guys, you know, guys that I can get drugs from, and uh, not a lot of them were skinheads. So I, I didn't really get to do what I wanted to do, but my plan was to get out and to start my own thing and to be like a really good skinhead, and that's what I wanted to do, and uh, kind of be like this shining light, this beacon of neo-Nazism. Um, and in, in the town that I grew up with, uh, but no, I didn't do it. My the, my drug problem uh, took over, and so I found myself in rehab. I had uh, I didn't have any money at the time, so the only the only option I had was to go to um, a mission, a homeless mission, where they had a twelve month drug program, and I went and joined that thing. And I just I I was just broken, and I knew that I needed to try something else, and I needed to really. Uh, just reflect on my life and and start making different choices. So I started reading a lot and exposed myself to a lot of different philosophies and different religions and and just trying to find my path and just trying to find the truth. And that's when I was exposed to 
uh, new atheism. Before we get to that, I kind of want to sure. ask you the the term that's thrown around a lot lately, more than any other one in terms of like race relations in the U.S. is white supremacist, white supremacy. It's used so loosely along with racist now that it, it's almost it, it becomes kind of a little bit of an of a meme and a joke and not taken very seriously. Right. Um, as a person who you used to actually hold that belief for real, not just the way um, Talib Kweli, <laughs> if anybody <laughs> follows him on Twitter, he throws it around like it like candy, like everybody's yeah. a white supremacist and it just loses all meaning. I think he even calls like Majin Nawaz like associated to white supremacy and just all kind of nonsense. Um, what do you think that word actually means having experience in that? Yeah, well, white supremacy is the active belief that the white race is superior to other races, that the white race is based genetic, based on genetics better, is superior in every way um, to every other race known to man on the earth. So and that's a big difference compared to racism that is simply, I mean, anybody can, you can be black and you can be racist towards another race, but to, you know, to be white supremacist is to believe that whites specifically are the superior race. How do you, how do you mean it's different from racism? Like a lot of people would just say those are almost like synonymous. You don't think they are? Um, in a way, but I mean, ra racism is not a particular, it's not focusing on a particular race, whereas white supremacy is the belief, the active belief that what the white race is the superior race. So yeah, I mean, that is a racist belief. But racism can be, you can be racist, you can be black and be racist towards whites or, you know what I mean? Oh, so, okay, I, mean, it's I see different, It's yeah. different in that sense. Okay. I mean, you could also have like different kinds of supremacy for like different races. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, but do, do you, do you see something negative about like it, it being used so loosely because it, it, it being used so loosely, I, I noticed that it kind of loses all value. It loses value and it, and it clouds you know, it just, it's not, you're not, you just need to clarify what you're talking about, honestly. I mean, if you're trying to have this discussion intellectually, you should clarify what you're talking about. Yeah, what and, worries me is that there's actually people who actually hold white, like, white supremacist beliefs that you, you were in. Right. And when you're confronted with that, it's good to have a word for it. But when that word is just, like, thrown around for everything else. Right. Well, then when you finally are confronted with, like, white supremacy, the word is not that poignant right it's not that shocking anymore it's just like ah, oh, yeah everybody's called a white supremacist nowadays right yeah absolutely agree with that yeah well anyone that disagrees with you like you said with talib quali um i've been called a race trader because i have mixed race kids yeah really? recently yeah. right jen mm -hmm. yep i was raised um in the uk and the u.s but i was always raised that america was a melting pot you know diversity immigrants. Um, I never was raised with that idea. Aside from um, the Mormon church and my my family uh, being very, very racist um, and being white supremacists, but the idea at school, you know, what America was, that that's the exact opposite of, of what these people are. So which one did you buy into more, Jen? Like, was it your family or the school or what you got outside of Oh, oh, I was so racist. You were? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I was sure that white people were better. I, I find it now, actually, that was something I was, I was telling a lot, I was curious about. Um, is it still something that you 
not is like fight, you know, maybe right. when, when, how do I put this? Is it something that you kind of may at times subconsciously, subconsciously pop into your head? Some ideas of, of like racism or white supremacy that you have to kind of quickly and like, there's a click in your head and, and you have to think like that's bullshit or is it a constant stream of, of logic and rationality? I think, I think that's what you're kind of getting at, Jen. Is that it? Yeah. 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 I think right now, as far as that, the, the neo-Nazi ideology and stuff, um, I, I'm over it uh, mm-hmm. because I wasn't very racist to begin with. Um, I, my, like I said, my stepdad was half Mexican and I'm even part Indonesian, which is funny. I mean, it was that was something that I just kind of tried to forget about when I was a skinhead. But um, I wasn't really, yeah, I wasn't really that, I wasn't really racist. I mean, I, I would say the N-word and stuff, but there was never any black kids around. And um I don't know. I just wasn't a really hateful racist kid, but I, I ju- it was just kind of the fad and it was just kind of the, the people that I hung out believed in that, you know, so I just uh, mouthed the words, but didn't really, you know, believe it. And then when I got into prison, I really believed that I, you know, that I was finding this, this Zionist conspiracy. I believed in all that. But like I said, I, I thought that your average, um, you know, non-white was just another pawn. Um, so it wasn't really their fault. So I just wasn't a very hateful person, I guess. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it was hard for me to stop saying the N-word and because even now where I live, people say it all the time like it's just another cuss word. Um, and then I still I still struggle with, with Christianity, uh, some concepts there like, um, you know, going to hell. Like I've had, I had a dream one time that a rock smashed me and I knew I was going to die. And I called out to Jesus because I was afraid that I was going to go like, you know, I could go to hell right now if I die, you know, and this is after being um, an atheist for a while. So I, I still kind of strong. It is. It's still it's still there. How how long would you since since how long would you say that you've been an atheist and you left behind all this ideology? How long has it been? Oh, that's been about six years now. Or no, yeah, about six, five, six years. Five, six. That's he's, not he's that long. Yeah. As long as yeah. I have, he's a baby atheist like me. A baby atheist, yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that's that's a that's a few years, but that's not really that long a time. Yeah, I remember. I think um, the when the moral when Sam Harris came out with the moral landscape, landscape mm-hmm. uh, that was around the time that I had just nearly he was a freshly converted atheist around that time. So yeah, it was like 2010, 2011. So so can you continue in the story where you're you're outside of, of prison at this point and you're very into drugs? Yeah. Like so how where where's the point that you escape this this belief system that you're in? Uh, that's when I start reading. Like I said, I was in a, a this rehab in this program and I was just reading a lot and I read The God Delusion and that really appealed to me because like I said my grandfather had kind of planted these seeds in me, these, you know, doubts and questions. And man, Richard just nailed all of them home with just this curiosity, fu- you know, and this intellectual, just uh, poetic, you know, way of writing that I just loved so much. And uh, so I was immediately just, I was like on board this this whole thing. I wanted to read more neo, uh, or not neo, not neo, 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 no, I wanted to read new, more New Atheist stuff, so then I got uh, Sam Harris and, you know, um, all those other guys. And it really, what I think it was Peter Bogosian's book that really, really did the deepest. Um, Which book is that? Uh, 
that's uh, a manual for creating atheists. Mm-hmm. I think that really gave me the tools that I needed to um, to really reflect and just to to really just become a, a critical thinker on my own and to come to my own conclusions. So that book, for example, is written for an atheist and how to talk with religious people. Did you read it in the sense that you're that religious person being talked to? At that time, I had already when I had read that, I was I was pretty much swayed by the arguments and I was and mm-hmm. you know I was kind of convinced that I was an atheist at this point and that you know that my skinhead uh beliefs were probably going to need to well definitely going to need to be reflected on but were probably wrong so um yeah by the time I had read Bogosian's book I was reading it as as an atheist more and I was learn I was learning a tool set to use because um, that, that's what Dawkins and the other books is lacked was they, you know, they gave you the answers, but they didn't really give you a tool set to use so you can get there on your own. So you can, you know, be a good critical thinker on your own. So, um, yeah. Oh, I when see, I, yeah. Okay. I see the difference you're getting at. It's like, a, it's like a system to use to kind of get there on your own. Exactly. Yeah. Just like kind of philosophically kind of going through topic by topic. Exactly. Okay, so speaking of that, do you find that you have a good response to teaching inmates the Socratic method? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only does my experience help, but I mean the fact that I've totally changed, turned my life around and changed, um, and I can, you know, I can be an example for those guys. And I know that those guys all want the same things that I have. I know that I mean because I wanted those things when I was in jail. I wanted to be free of my addiction and to have you know, a family or, or, you know, to have people that love me around me, you know, friends and stuff like that, good people I can trust and to be successful and to have respect, you know, and just all that. So, um, well, before you get into to, like, I want to get more into the like foundation that you started, right? You're the founder. I got the idea when I was reading his book and, um, yeah, well, I, before we get to that, I, I, sure. I also want to ask you, do you know, can you think of like specific points that hit you that converted you specifically that while you were reading? Yeah, as far as Christianity, I think the biggest ones were just exposing the way that they exposed um, uh, the Bible contradicting itself um, and then and learning the history about how the Bible was formed and all that. I mean, just learning that was really the, the nail in the co- final nail in the coffin for Christianity for me. I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I kind of just thought that you know, the Bible fell from, from heaven and I didn't really realize that, you know, it was put together 400 years after Jesus had died and, you know, it was written by people that didn't even know Jesus and, and they were stories that were passed down by word of mouth. So just reading those things that they were telling me or writing about, you know, um, about Christianity, uh, that really uh, hit home for me. Um, as far as the neo-Nazi thing, um, I don't remember them specifically writing anything about that. I just knew that I just had this new tool set, this, you know, the rationality and logic and, and proportioning my beliefs to the evidence. So um, that's, those things are really what led me away from neo-Nazism. So it, w- it wasn't so much the, the, an escape from racism. It was more an escape from like religion from yeah. with these books. Right, right. And, and so after I had escaped from religion by using you know, logic and, and proportioning my beliefs to the evidence. And I, I took those tools and then I used them in other parts of my life. And so, um, you know, I started reflecting on, okay, why, why do I believe in this neo-Nazism? You know, okay, well, because I believe that there's a Jewish conspiracy um, to destroy the white race. Well, why do I believe that? Okay, well, 
because skinheads believe that because there's this pamphlet that I read called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. All right, well, let's check, let's go and check this uh, thing out. Let's see who wrote it. You know, let's see if anybody's ever examined it, if there's ever been, you know, sci uh, scientists that have looked at it and, and tried to see if it was, you know, real or not. You know, so that's what I did. And I be and began to just realize that my beliefs weren't proportioned to the evidence. That, that uh, text that I had mentioned, the Protocols of Zion, turned out to be a fraudulent text. Um, so that's what I mean. I was just I was examining things critically um, and finding out that I was uh, believing things that weren't logical and that didn't have evidence to support them. So I changed my beliefs, and that's how I got to where I am now. What did you do after that? After you suddenly you find yourself in oh my uh, oh my god I'm an atheist, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is an ironic well, way of putting it, but yeah. I've always been really passionate, no matter what I believe. Um, I've been a passionate person and wanted to share my beliefs. And so when I, you know, became an atheist, uh, I got involved with, um, the, there's Chico Skeptics, my local skeptic community. Um, they didn't have a leader at the time, so I stepped up and I was running Chico Skeptics and um, just trying to find uh, ways to uh, be an activist or to just step up as a local free thinker and, and you know be a leader and just to see you know what we needed to do around the community um, to make it a better community for free thinkers um, and for everybody alike you know but uh, particularly free thinkers and uh, and then that's when I started to think you know what can I start on my own so um, I remembered reading Bogosian's book and I tried reaching out to him and he actually you know reached back to me and I so I started Say by Reason. So can you want to explain what Save by Reason is? Sure, yeah. Um, well, so I, I knew I wanted to go into jails and help people. Um, so when I talked to Peter, he said he had to, you know, he was a professor, so he had, he had to show his credentials and he had to go through all this stuff through social services, which, you know, required waiting lists and all kinds of paperwork to go into a jail or, or any kind of institution like that to, to teach inmates. And uh, he was like, "So just be prepared, man. You know, you're not a you're not a professor or anything. So you're gonna have a really hard time getting in." Well, luckily, r around this time, the Federal Bureau of Prisons ruled that secular humanism uh, is now recognized as a religion in prisons, and religious ministers are allowed to just without they don't have to be a professor, they don't have to go through social services and fill out a bunch of paperwork and stuff. They're allowed to just show that they're a registered minister, and they're allowed to go into the jail and talk to inmates and and do Bible studies or whatever. So before this, like if you were just a, a person who wanted to speak with inmates in a non-religious way, you couldn't. You had to be an imam, a, a, a pastor, something like that. Yeah. Well, you had you had. Well, the the pastors could always go in uh, easily, but if you wanted to teach them something like critical thinking or any anything that was educational, you had to go through social services, which is a major headache. Everybody else could go through uh, religious people like ministers and stuff can just go through the religious door basically. Wait, wait, wait. So, 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 so you're telling me, for the most span of history of time in prisons, it was harder to go into a prison and teach critical thinking. But if you Absolutely. wanted to just teach the Bible or the Quran, you could just walk in at any time. <laughs> that's what you're telling me. Oh my that's, gosh, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Yes, <laughs> I, I think it's so obvious. <laughs> Do I really have to say the problem with that premise right there? No. That's, that's and we wonder so... why the problem in prisons is so bad. 
I mean, yeah. it's like I, if so, if I go to prison, I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I'm an atheist. I want to go in and teach the Socratic method and critical thinking skills to these inmates. They're like, well, yeah, that's that's kind of really hard. Yeah. But if take I take a but seat, if, <laughs> take a seat. But if you if a guy behind me is like, hey, I'm a pastor and I want to teach the Bible, they go walk right, go right in. in, right in. That is amazing. That's crazy. But so now now I have a way to get right in just like those guys. I that's went, really I, cool, though. Yeah. Secular humanism is recognized. When yeah. was, did this change? Uh. This changed actually last year, last summer, so oh, summer wow, of 2015. So That's crazy. Yeah, Federal Bureau of Invest uh, of Prisons. Sorry. Uh huh. And so, so, so then you could get in, and then what did you do? Did you prepare like a a, a system to talk with the, the inmates and everything? Yeah. Well, um, Peter basically has a chapter dedicated to this to uh, how to how to talk to somebody about Socratic the Socratic method. And then he wrote a dissertation on on teaching inmate Socratic method, and it's all recorded. So I've read you know the crap out of that, and um, I'm work, right now working on curriculum. Um, but yes, yeah, basically just kind of made my, my own curriculum, and, and all I do is just talk about the Socratic method. And you can be you can be a Christian, you can you can be any religion, and come come talk to me. Um, and we don't even talk about religion; we just talk about critical thinking. And do you find there's a lot of people in prisons who who want to approach that who are not religious yeah. and looking for Oh yes, totally. They're they're really interested. First it's just curiosity and then when they start engaging in the conversation, it gets really interesting. And they get really engaged and it's fun and they have fun. So, um I'm just trying to use that, you know, just the fun aspect of it, you know, of yeah, this is cool, you know, you can be a better thinker and have fun doing it. So, um but That's so what right I was now wondering. The, the reaction that you were getting um, from the inmates because yeah. that, that seems like the best thing to teach them. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, so I start out like, what is justice? What do you guys think justice is? And, you know, an inmate will raise his hand and he'll say, I don't know, something like God's will um, is justice. Right. Or just <laughs> or justice is standing up for what you believe in. And then so that will give me an opportunity to say something funny like, OK, well, what if you believe something weird, you know, like, you know, what if like a child molester or, or something like that? And then the guy's, oh, yeah, we hate child molesters. No way. That ain't justice, you know. So that gets everybody else all riled up. And so everybody, you know, and other people start chiming in and stuff, you know, well, I think it's this. And so they start trying to find logic or they start trying to find holes in their own logic. You know what I mean? Um, and, it, and it gets it gets really interesting. Do you teach that? Do you bring up any kind of sci scientific ideas like evolution and things like that for? For people like what? What do you go over? I I haven't gotten there yet. I'm trying to. I really want to write down curriculum first because there's a lot of other subjects that have helped me, not just critical thinking. Sam Harris wrote a book about um, mindful med mindful meditation and having PTSD and all the trauma that I've been through and anxiety that I have. That has helped me, and it's helped me just be more more rational thinker and stuff because I can you know I can think in the moment and not be bombarded by all these other thoughts and emotions, you know? I imagine that's a typical problem for a lot of inmates. It is. It really is. So I, I want to incorporate that into my curriculum as well. I want to touch on a lot more subjects than just critical thinking and the Socratic method. Oh, to, also te to also teach them uh, non-religious mindfulness seems like a very good thing. Right. If we could right. have this nationwide, it'd be really nice. Wouldn't it? Well, I'm trying to get there. I have people volunteering in other states on the East Coast. Um, so it's not just West Coast. I'm trying to, to take this nationally. You know, there's some Pastafarian uh, guys that I've been talking to in Texas that are doing this, that are visiting inmates. 
in Texas. So, you know, I'm trying oh. to get this to go nationwide. So again, you're the, you're the president and founder of America's first secular humanist prison outreach organization called Save, first... Save by Reason. Mm-hmm. First one. Um, we're a kind of on a little bit of a hiatus right now. I'm working on, I'm really trying to get my book done. It's important for me to get that finished. So I'm, I've been, that's like a priority right now. What is your, your book about? Do you want to talk about it a little? Sure. Um, it's basically just, it's going to be part memoir. And then I want to take the concepts that I've read about, like, like I just talked about, you know, the mindful me meditation and, and uh, Socratic method, and then some of the other scientific concepts that are a little more complicated, and break them down so that they're a little more digestible to people that are addicts and um, people that are in gangs, and you know, just basically the people coming from the backgrounds that I, that I came from. I want to reach those people, so I, I'm trying to write a ba basically a memoir about my life, and then it's also kind of like a, a god delusion for addicts kind of thing you know what I mean or or people in gangs um, really so yeah yeah I think uh, I think it should shouldn't have a hard time getting published so I think you know there's a pretty big audience right it's now a, for it's, this it's hard to book. sit down and, and get books written I've been trying to write one for a year now and <laughs> yeah and I'm a single dad so it's it's rough <laughs> oh I, I hear you <laughs> I'm yeah. two teenage kids it's <laughs> yeah I have no kids and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you lucky man. No, it, it's great. It's great, dude. I love it. <laughs> dude, so Lalo can cut this out. I was going to tell you about the Mormon church, just how crazy this is. Sure, um, yeah. You want me to cut out what you're well, about to say? Well, you don't have to, but um, mm. you you couldn't be a member of the Mormon church if you were black or had brown skin or anything until 78. Um, we were taught that black people mm -hmm. had the mark of Cain. Um, and like my dad drove me into Watts when I was young and told me, I told all of this, that if I married anyone that wasn't white, that was going to be my life. So like, um, he's like, you know, there's Watts riots and mm. shit. And, um, that anyone that had darker skin was evil and terrible. And, um, I, even now, that's what I was asking about how, if, if there's a part of you that might even, you were, you weren't, I mean, you were kind of raised with it, but not like I was raised with it. Um, with the religion telling me that, well, the religion told me that the more pious and the better Mormon you were, your mm -hmm. skin would literally change and you right. would become more white. So, um, that's a trip, dude. Right? And it, it used to be in the Book of Mormon, but they took it out. At, you know, they they take things out over time. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, I think in like 1990 they took it out. Um, wow, that late? Yeah. Like. <laughs> crazy that's like, insane like um i married uh, an indian pakistani guy and um my family aside from leaving the mormon church uh, my family disowned me for marrying someone that wasn't white mm -hmm. so it was just like but i i still find myself when it when a, a person of darker skin sometimes i will i will start to like lock my doors and then stop you know just like what am i doing you know it's it's something innate i don't know how to stop it but i do immediately but just like for just a split second it's it's there and i mm -hmm. and it disgusts me it's it's i find it shameful and mm -hmm. i'm i get disgusted with myself same way i i thought about jews and gays you know i tell this to everybody but you know i wish death on my, to my gay brother because that was the way it was with islam the the whole thing about right. surrounding yourself with the, the like-minded people and the way i thought about 
certain types of people and just thinking that right. people should die. But it's, yeah, right. it's, um, I don't know if, if uh, there's a lot of like Samoans and stuff in the Mormon church, but I don't know if people are aware of how um, racist Mormons are. I don't, I don't think uh, people consider it uh, like a white supremacist no. kind of religion, but, but you, I mean, still kind of is, and it sounds like it was very much like that up until recently, right, Jen? Like, like I, we would, we would, like, I'm very, very white, but um, we would, like, our friends, because they had, like, the Native American, um, the Indian placement program where they would take young kids out of their homes and place them with Mormon families. And they would tell these kids if they were pious and good, their skin, I mean, literally would whiten. So if you guys are just really good, you'll have white skin and, and that, you know, you'll be white and delightsome. The literal words they would tell them, white and delightsome. Wow. It's just, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, white was better. And, and yeah. I always thought, you know, white yeah. was better. So this whole thing lately about being called a race trader and stuff, I just, it's, it's, it's interesting. Is there any uh, specific belief you look back on, Joshua, and you think like that is the craziest thing I believed back then? Oh man, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's hard, a good thing. But... But no, I I think the craziest one really is just believing, and a lot most skinheads that I know believe that um, they accept evolution, um, but they believe they they believe that that that's how the other races got here. And I I really believe that we were like we either evolved from some like fish type of creature. <laughs> or we came from alien, an alien race. You mean Whites, white people? Whites. Yeah, I thought white people came from e either evolved from fish and came from the water instead of apes, or they came from uh, aliens or something, and and were therefore completely separate than humans. Wait, they evolved differently Th than other than other races. So yeah. you, so they believe in evolution for other races that they evolved right. from apes, they, but white right. people specifically evolved either uh, from like differently or from aliens either from either on another planet or maybe from from the sea or something we came from another animal well, that's but, different yeah they don't believe we evolved from apes they believe that other races did and that's why they're more lowly than than the than the aryan race basically did, did but, they ever show you any proof or any kind of to back that stuff up did you ever question it i remember reading uh, like a pamphlet that they had put out like like aryan nations had put out or something and it was, uh, I don't remember, I don't remember specifically what they were saying. I think it was about a comet that hit the earth and it somehow had evidence that there was life here before it had evolved um, from apes. Um, so I think, yeah, that was probably it. Jen, you want to ask something? Oh, I was going to ask, was there any part of you that... Um was like this isn't right so you would think that you needed to find out you would want to study it more like um, it yeah fast. yeah but i just didn't at the time i was in prison so i didn't i didn't have access to a whole lot so i just had access to neo nazi stuff you know so it was all just dogma basically and the prison like the people that run the prisons know this is going on and they don't do anything about it um no i mean that that would be you know taking away amendments so i mean you can't I mean, you yes, know, people that have, makes sense. Yeah, people have freedoms, so. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it might be horrible beliefs, but it's their beliefs, and people have the freedom to those beliefs, right? Right. Yeah, but but the whole thing with um, with you bringing secular ideas 
into the prison. And I think that's the that's the radical change there, right? Because it's one yeah. thing to say like, okay, people have freedom of belief in prisons, but when you're limiting the people coming in who are bringing in new ideas, right, right. Or, or reinforcing ideas, and you're saying it's only can be like re- religious people can go in, and if you're just bringing science and skepticism and critical thinking, it's like, oh, you know, you can't come in. That then it's it's not a really fair playing field of, of ideas, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being when I was in prison, looking for groups, trying to see if there was groups, and there was there was nothing but religious groups. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I could go to church, and that was it. So I know that there's people in there that that are looking for stuff and that want to change. You know, that want to better themselves. There's just no access for them. There's no tools for them. So I mean, that's what I'm trying to do is is provide one. The in the U.S. right now, like race is such a big thing, and it, there's so much arguments about how to deal with racism and things like that. You having been in that mentality, what would you recommend is the best way to get people out of out of that way of thinking? Uh, out of racism? Yeah, I mean, out, out of out of you know, in, in when when you find yourself against like an actual white supremacist. Mm-hmm. And you can, and let's say you actually have the the moment where you can have sit down and have a conversation with them and present them with ideas. What do you think, having you been in that mentality, what is what is the best approach to it? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a great question. I know. I guess I guess for me, <laughs> is, uh, present. I mean, in my experience, most people are pretty pretty logical thinkers, even if they have really illogical beliefs. Um, they they were pro- those beliefs were probably pounded into them as as children. And and not and not a lot of people really reflect on on their beliefs. Not, I mean, even secularists that are, you know, born and raised in a secular home, they don't really reflect on their beliefs to see if is is this something I really believe, you know. We just we're not taught to do that, so it's not something we we typically do. So um, I, I you know so I I believe that people are are most people for the most part are really logical people. So I would approach it um, with the evidence and say, look, you know. I, is this logical? Is this belief logical? And uh, you know, let's look at the evidence. Let's let's look at some of the evidence to uh, that, that that shows that maybe it's not. And I, w- I think I would approach it that way. Um, and then I guess just you know, empathy is is really a big one. Um, just telling people to to have empathy and to put your yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, I don't know. What about you, Jen? What do you think would be a good way to approach that conversation? Um, I think what you said. Yeah. I think there's a whole Sorry. lot of anger, and and when when there's anger, there's not a chance for discourse. And I hear a lot of talking points and a lot of um, just. I think people just shut down and and they don't want to listen. And I think. Mm-hmm. If you react in the same way, that's my big problem because I get um, defensive when because it I think because I've been there and and it it bothers me um, and it bothers me more now because I have mixed race kids so I feel um, I'm emotionally invested in it so mm-hmm. knowing that I was that way and that I don't I didn't have to stay that way so I was able to grow and have empathy and humanity. Um, I think it bothers me that a little bit more, so I get just a tiny bit more defensive, but I don't think that helps. I right. think um, I, I really think that coming at it the way you said is is the best way. I wouldn't right. know any other way to come at it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, neither would I. Um, and like I said, lo logic is kind of a language that everybody understands. And so if you come at it that way and go, look, man, I'm just looking for the truth, you know, and I'm not saying this is really how it is, but I mean, look at the evidence, you know, it, and once they see it themselves, you know, and then it's going to be pretty hard to argue with the facts. Uh, Doesn't you know mean I'm I mean? always good at it or right. <laughs> that they're but, always going to listen. But the problem, and the problem there is so, so some of these topics are so nuanced that it's, I mean, it's really hard to, to not get emotion, your emotions flared up when you're talking about these things because they're not things you can just talk about in five minutes. You know, mm -hmm. you really got to delve deep into some really deep topics and, and go into some pretty deep rabbit holes, you know, and and discuss the history and, and uh, you know, the philosophy and all that behind certain cultures. And, and you know, there's just a lot of nuance to these things. So, um, yeah. Uh, open minds, if you could do it with an open mind and definitely. willing to admit that you're wrong or, or ha I mean, I, I, I say it all the time, like I would still be Muslim. Or Mormon, or have be a member of another cult if I wasn't able to be wrong or have an open mind. So, mm -hmm. you know, and even now when I'm discussing things to do with Islam or, you know, anything uh, really, I have to be willing to accept that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to call myself a skeptic or even, you know, an advocate for, you know, equal rights. I think one of the problems I see with the approach that currently in the US people on the left who are quote unquote trying to fight racism are getting wrong is that they're focusing on the color of skin of the people that they see as opponents mm -hmm. so they see their opponents as like white supremacists and they focus on the identity white... politics yeah they focus on the whiteness and i hear i really fervently reject these um actions that are taken in universities or or um, social groups where they purposely exclude people not for their ideas but for their skin color so they'll have like some meeting or they'll have some uh, you know student group or something like that or a class or excursions and they'll say we don't want white people there we only want people of color there mm. or the ads for jobs even That's yeah ads for jobs and I, I you know there's stories of like P of uh, students you know like a few black students asking uh for student a uh, student dorm room only with uh other you know uh, roommates that are people of color they don't want white kids in there and they you know they say it's a, they want a, a a safe space free of microaggressions and things like that. that well that's why when when you introduced me i really wanted you to to introduce me as a classical liberal and not just a liberal mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah i mean this it's a trend that we're seeing all over the place and it's it's re it really reminds me of of the neo-nazis and just just the way that they're shutting down free speech and uh just because it contradicts their ideology or it makes them uncomfortable you know so they you know they have these trigger warnings or safe zones or whatever do you also see some uh, similarities there in kind of that we are better off being around our own based on skin color exactly it's exactly what it, yeah it's this the same thing that i saw and and the skinhead circles is Let's separate because we're more comfortable with our own kind of thing. And, and then if you're white, you're automatically racist. The reverse right. racism doesn't exist. Like, what? oh, it's hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't like that term reverse racism. I think it's just racism. Well, yeah, that it's just it's, the whole thing is ridiculous. I, I mean, also, I the the pro I see multiple problems when they do that. One, they're being is just I think it's just flat out racism because 
you're excluding people in a group not for what their beliefs are or their ideas you know they like they could say hey maybe we don't want a skinhead or a neo-nazi or something like that in the it, like here today you know if we you know they don't want like half the group to be like uh aggressive in racial beliefs that's one thing um but then you you know it, when you differentiate people based on their beliefs that that's you know there's clear disagreement no matter what their skin color is there but when they say like we want people of color and we don't want white people here well to me they're, they're saying like we want people of a certain skin color and it doesn't matter what you believe you could we could all disagree you could have horrible beliefs but we want people of this skin color and we don't care how liberal you are or how nice you are or how not racist you are um and you're white we just don't want white people and that that that's me i don't see anything liberal about that at all i mean it would never occur to me to do any kind of group or organize anything at all it doesn't matter really what if it was a <laughs> professional thing or a social thing and to differentiate right. people based on their skin color it just never would occur to me and these people are painting it as like this is the new kind of liberalism which i don't think it is and this and another problem they add when they do that is one they're being racist and the two they're kind of instigating and validating those extremist you know white supremacists or or any kind of uh, uh, white racists on the other side right because they they can then say ah see you white kids, don't don't you see how they're separating you? Don't you see how they're belittling you and and discriminating against you? Do you see how it's leaning towards uh, favoritism towards the people of color? And mm-hmm. and when they the the universities and administration do that, they validate those ideas. That right? is so true. Yeah. And I bet you the groups that you w- would have moved in at that time would take those stories and see ah see see how the what the people of color are doing against you and that's i think they're 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 doing their work for them when they do that and those those situations should be squashed immediately they should tell those students to me like if if there's you know chilean students like me for example they and and a bunch of chileans are saying you know we don't want white people here this university say look if you don't want to be around white people that's your thing you can't ask the university to administrate that in any kind of way you can't be a group in uh like in um under the university, the official group of the university, there can't be a class, there can't be an excursion, there can't be anything where you're excluding skin color or race or nationality or gender or sexuality. You want mm-hmm. to do that, you can do it in private. You can't do it under our name. Isn't it yeah. illegal to it, do that? I mean, uh, the problem I, I see is that I think technically it's illegal in general, but the only time the laws are applied is when it's done by white people, right? And because they're not going to kind of apply laws against non-white people like if they're black or if they're gay or anything like that because then the university if they if they say you can't do that well then the university is called racist and you're not giving us a safe space and you're not and this is microaggressions and etc etc so they turn they flip it on its head right they flip it on the head where the person being racist is saying no 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 you're being racist by not allowing me to separate myself from white people Right. And I think that's a very dangerous road that basically liberal institutions are going down. I don't see how they can condone it at all. I think people are just scared at this point. I think if you're a university teacher or administrator. Yeah. You know, there, there's so much like because that's what it's, that's why it's called social justice. Right. Like these there are basically kids online with Tumblrs and Twitters and Facebooks. And if if, you know, a student in a university can post something on Facebook 
or Twitter, and if it gets 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 shares, it doesn't matter if, if the people who shared that were 14-year-old whatevers who don't know a thing about a thing. Uh, salon, what uh, Upworthy, you know, uh, MTV, uh, whatever. They'll do a, a video. They'll do a, an article where they'll say, hey, this went viral. Look at this. This 14-year-old girl, this 18-year-old girl, this this 21-year-old, you know, gay black girl in a university called her professor racist for saying etc. or doing this, right? It doesn't matter what was said. doesn't matter what really happened. It got too many shares. The, the, the school is scared of the bad publicity and they'll fire the administrator or the teacher. And, and that's what they call social justice these days, right? The, the justice of the majority. And that's a very dangerous way to be running institutions uh, of education. So I, I don't really like uh, that whole deal at all. I don't like no, what's happening with it's, education. It's leading us towards Orwell's 1984. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. With the thought police and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 14-year-olds dictating what, you know, a professor with a PhD might be teaching at Yale or Berkeley. Right? That's just, that's insane. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, Josh, before we yeah. we ended it, um, in the, with the whole thing with uh, elections coming up and Donald Trump and I think it was David Duke who said that he endorsed uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. Do you do you see Donald Trump actually being a, a voice of kind of that uh, white supremacists or neo Nazis would actually be sympathetic to, or do you think? Despite all all the crazy things he says, all his misogyny, they they would reject him. Is there actually validity to the accusation that they would sympathize with his point of view? Absolutely. Um, yeah. What, a, what about would... it, his views? Do you think that they sympathize with? Well, I mean, just everything, all his talking points, everything that he says is it's just it's like right out of the the playbook of you know right wing or you know, far-right conservative uh, ideology talking points. You know, he talks about migration and building a wall. Man, that's something that skinheads have been talking about, you know, since skinheads have been around, is having this country back and building a wall around it and keeping everybody else out. So, um, you know, whether Donald Trump himself personally is a white supremacist and, you know, reads Mein Kampf and, you know, likes Hitler, I, I seriously doubt those things. Yeah, I, I doubt that, that that's the reasons he's saying those things. Either. Right. It's violent, right. likely, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just saying those things to, to become president, um, most likely. But, yeah, I mean, he is definitely somebody that they can endorse because he's saying the things that they want to hear. Uh, it's it's interesting and it's it's scary. Um, we know when I was a skinhead at the time, we had Barack Obama was running, and you know he was he was just coming out as and announcing that he was going to win, and uh, you know there I, I remember the skinheads just thinking that was never going to happen, and and if it did, it was going to be the most terrible thing that could happen to America. So I'm I'm really not surprised that um, that Trump's success is so. Um, just fast moving and just, you know, it's just like a caught catching like wildfire because, uh, you know, we had a black president and it's fueled the fire um, for these guys for eight years now. So, you know, they've recruited a lot of people and, you know, they've used Obama's presidency as, as an excuse. And, you know, the fact that, that the Republicans have been focusing so much on Obama's failures and and saying that he's, you know, a, a Muslim and he's trying to destroy America, that's only been fueling the fire for neo-Nazis and, and, you know, white supremacists and racists in the country for eight years. 
and now they have a guy that's up there, you know, saying all the things that they've been wanting to hear from a leader. So it's it's scary, man, and it's just uh, it's really not a surprise, honestly. Can we talk about that a little bit? Black Lives Matter. Yeah. What is your opinion yes. on on Black Lives Matter? Well, I mean, I, this is interesting because there is a problem with police shooting unarmed people, but it, I mean, it's. In my experience, it's not just black people. And I, I understand that there is institutional racism and that, you know, we still have issues with ra racism in the country. But shouldn't the focus be on on everybody that's being shot by the police? I mean, I just had a friend, a personal friend of mine, Andrew Thomas, um, last Thanksgiving was uh, driving home. He was drunk driving and a cop was following him and he flipped his car before the cop was able to uh, hit a siren or anything, he, my buddy flipped his car and his girlfriend that was in the car flew out of the front windshield. And so his, my buddy's first instinct was to get out of the car. So he, he pops his head up out of the car to get on it because it, it's flipped over on its side and he's trying to get out. And the cop just walks right up, points his gun at him. And this was on CNN and I think even TYT did a, show, uh, uh, a thing on it. But um, and the cop pulls the gun out and just shoots my buddy in the neck puts his gun back and my buddy falls back into the car and he's and the cop just starts looking for the, the casing to his shell for like 11 minutes and this is all on camera on a dash cam um, the, the police come the other cops show up he doesn't say anything about shooting the guy uh, my friend tells the other cops I've been shot I can't get out because they're telling him to get out of the car he's like I, I've been shot I can't get out and the other cops like no I didn't shoot him he's lying and so they're saying get out of the car get out of the car and he's still looking for the bullet and not until the paramedics pulled him out of the car and saw the bullet in his neck about 15 minutes later, uh, he, he said, oh, yeah, my gun might have went off. So um, the DA was going to let this go. He said it was a, an accidental shooting. So I organized a protest. We had about 100 people, 50 sh or 150 people show up from my town. Um, we did it right where the accident happened, which happened to be right across from the police station. So it was all over no local news and stuff. And we, we lasted for about a month until finally uh, uh, Andrew died in the hospital. Um, and How long ago uh, was this? This was last, last November and December. Mm -hmm. he, he was shot in November, died in December, and we protested through De December and January. Why, why did the police officer shoot him? Well, during the trial, he claimed he didn't even know he shot him. He claimed he doesn't even remember shooting him. He says he, I think he says he brought out his gun because it had a flashlight on it. So he was using the flashlight on the gun. I'm, I, he's, he's, I just know that he said during the trial he didn't even remember shooting him. So well, I, don't, I, can't, I can't speculate as to why he shot him. All right. um, but he, so he was charged with involuntary manslaughter and fired. So we stopped protesting and the trial went through and he was just uh, charged uh, or found guilty. Excuse me. He was found guilty by the jury. So that's that's great. You know, it's that we've got some justice. But my point in sharing the story is that this is happening everywhere and it's happening to everybody. It's not just happening to black people. Um, I know it's happening to black people more than it is to white people, uh, even though there are more white people shot a year than there are black people. Um, if you would if you take into account you know the that the population of blacks to whites is is lower uh than than it is more blacks are being shot per year so so proportionately proportionally my, right more, yeah. proportionately yeah, right but blacks are also uh, committing more more crimes so 
I, you know, I don't know. I just think that there's a lot more nuance to this than just, you know, it being about blacks being shot by white cops. I also think one of the problems I see with uh, Black Lives Matter is the fact that it's just a hashtag on Twitter. Right. And multiple organizations can open up under that hashtag, under that name. Right. So any people can show up at a protest or at a rally or organize something going on and not just in the United States, but now all over the world. And they're wearing T-shirts or signs that says Black Lives Matter and people accept that they're representatives of that movement. And that didn't used to be that way. It used to be that a, an organization would open up under with certain heads of that organization with a mission statement mm -hmm. um, with certain priorities and certain objectives. And they would organize uh, a protest or a rally or a meeting somewhere with those heads, with a certain agenda, with certain objectives, and then they would go out and protest. But here, you know, you could find very easily two people who are Black Lives Matter supporters on Twitter or even run organizations themselves with, with members, and they don't agree on anything. So do, does, does Black Lives Matter, do they have like a structure? Do they have a board? Do they have a leader? Well, there you are know what many, I mean? but well, here's the thing. Like there, I think it actually started with three, three girls who I don't remember the name to who started the hashtag, but it just branched out into anything it wanted anyone to be. That's what I, assume, right. And I think that's right? a very bad thing right now is it that is. people can take just a hashtag and it can just be thrown around as just anything and anybody can re represent it 20 years ago that that wasn't happening and so i see a lack of structure there where anybody who's like 14 or 15 can go on twitter ha you know have hashtag black lives matter and say anything and then that could be screen captured and quoted right. in, a, in an article and say oh see how black lives matter thinks right and and then another person will say take a you know another account that sounds much more rational and say no 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 this is black lives matter so anybody is black lives matter no you know, nobody can you do you guys know the name of one representative of black lives matter officially could you name no. one De De deray is he a represent uh, is he is he, is he, is he the only person i know deray uh, uh, mckenzie or something his name is yeah, yeah so he's popular but is his word taken as the official word for Black Lives Matter? No, what I don't about, think they have an official. What about coats? What about coats? Is, is his coat? word taken as, as <laughs> no. a? I don't think so, right? <laughs> I don't right? think so. But that was the only one I can think of. Right. So, and I and I don't think I don't even think most people can name a representative, right? Not and and even if you name somebody who's kind of well known, like like D. Ray McKenzie, it's like. Is he is he represent is he a representative of that movement where he's just like people can say you know quote him and say this is what Black Lives Matter thinks well no he just kind of represents himself right then that's their biggest problem is that they don't have structure you know like they're just a hashtag like you said yeah that that's that I see is a is a one of the big problems of of these movements that now we have like hashtag movements where it's just anything goes and anything said is. Is represented. I mean, any anytime I see like a rally and you know there's some people with Black Lives Matter T-shirts, people say, "Ah, see, look what Black Lives Matter is doing." Do they represent Black Lives Matter? Kind of yes, kind of no, right? It's just like I I, I don't know, you know. It's <laughs> as like long they, as they're black, right? Yeah, they, they're black, so. right? They they they, they represent <laughs> maybe some people, not not everyone. That's so. well, that's what I mean. Like that's what I meant by what I said is like that's what it seems to me right now is 
is if you're black, then you represent, you can have a voice in, in the BLM movement. But if you're not black, you don't, you don't have a voice, you know, and you don't even get to, to have a part in the conversation. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's a problem. Definitely. Um, they, they need structure and then they need to, um, get a part of the, be a part of the national conversation by letting other people get in, get in, into the conversation, you know, and not just limiting the conversation to, to the color of your, you know, to the color of your skin. But, well, I could talk to you guys forever. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely. Love, I love your show, Lalo. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, no, um, no problem. Well, thank you, uh, Joshua Turner, for for being on. Do you, again, do you want to talk? Uh, mention your your uh, websites or any, sure. anything where people can find well, you. People can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Save by Reason on Twitter or Facebook. Save by Reason. Um, our website is down and getting worked on right now, um, but. You can, I mean, if, if you're listening to this, it might be up right now. So www.savebyreason.org is our website. Um, but yeah, right now you can get a hold of me on Twitter at Save By Reason. And I'm um, just trying to get this book done and, and get it out there. And uh, until then, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing with Save By Reason. And uh, we could appreciate any support anybody can lend us. Well, thank you, Joshua, for being on. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. Oh, it was lots of fun. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks. Thanks again. Right on. Mm-hmm.